Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Episode 100. Whatever it takes. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 100, Avengers Endgame. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. So, this is the culmination of my series on the Avengers and it's also the 100th episode of Verbal Diorama. And I guess the first thing I have to say is, is thank you so much for being here, really no matter how long you have been here whether you are a long-time returning listener, whether you're a brand new listener, whether you've literally just started on this Avengers series and that's it. This episode feels really special. I mean, I guess it kind of is because it's episode 100, but lots of podcasts do reach episode 100. But I think sort of throughout this whole podcast journey, this, this episode specifically has always been a goal. It's always been an aim of mine to reach 100 episodes. So this is actually really cathartic for me. So if at any point I sound emotional, then chances are I actually am. Because if you are a long time listener, you will know that I do often get quite emotional. Genuinely, I'm just so proud to have reached this goal and I'm so happy that you are here with me. Like I say, no matter how long you've been here, whether you started with episode one, if you did, I'm really sorry, or, you know, whenever you started listening, um, I'm just so grateful and uh, yeah <laughs> I'm not I'm not gonna get emotional I promise so listeners have really embraced the Avengers which is kind of what I expected it's kind of why I plan to do this four-part Avengers series and I did get some really lovely comments I got a comment for the episode on the Avengers saying that they wanted it to be at least 30 minutes longer I'm also super proud of Age of Ultron too I know it's a really divisive movie but people really kind of meshed with that episode especially my feelings regarding Natasha and how I felt about her arc in that one honestly Avengers Infinity War as I'm recording this hasn't been out that long so I haven't really heard much about what people think about Infinity War but 
This episode is very much a second part to that episode in so many ways. Because regardless of what the Russo brothers say, Infinity War and Endgame, they are essentially a a two-part story. You can't have the events of Endgame without the events of Infinity War. And it's very similar with this. You can't have episode 100 without the events of episode 99. So I'm not going to waffle on. I'm not going to get emotional. I'm just going to crack on. So without further ado, episode 100, Avengers Endgame. There were 14,605,000 ways this episode could go. This is the one where we win. God, seems like a thousand years ago. I fought my way out of that cave. Became Iron Man. Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but I was really hoping to pull off one last one. The world has changed. None of us can go back. All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over. All these people die. I keep telling everybody they should move on. Some do, but not us. Even if there's a small chance, we owe this to everyone who's not in this room to try. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Catastrophe, confusion, loss. The overwhelming devastation caused by the mad Titan Thanos has left what remains of the Avengers reeling. For a while, all hope seems lost until an opportunity to reverse the damage is presented. Now the team must assemble once more and do whatever it takes to restore the universe and bring those they lost back. Let's go through the astonishingly huge cast of this movie. 
literally everyone who's ever been in a Marvel movie is in this movie. So, Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, aka Iron Man. Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner, aka Hulk. Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, aka Captain America. Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff, aka Black Widow. Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton, aka Hawkeye. Paul Rudd as Scott Lang, aka Ant-Man. Don Cheadle as James Rhodey Rhodes, aka War Machine. Brie Larson as Carol Danvers, aka Captain Marvel. Karen Gillan as Nebula. Benedict Wong as Wong. Zoe Saldana as Gamora. Danai Guerrera as Okoye. John Favreau as Happy Hogan. Bradley Cooper as Rocket. Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts. Josh Brolin as Thanos. Plus, previously snapped characters from Infinity War who return include Benedict Cumberbatch as Dr. Stephen Strange, Tom Holland as Peter Parker, aka Spider-Man, Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, aka Black Panther, Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff, Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson, aka Falcon, Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes, aka Winter Soldier, Pom Clementif as Mantis, Dave Batista as Drax, Vin Diesel as Groot, Chris Pratt as Peter Quill, aka Star-Lord, Letitia Wright as Shuri, Winston Duke as M'Baku, Kobe Smulders as Maria Hill, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, and additionally, returning or new to the Avengers franchise, Evangeline Lilly as Hope Van Dyne, aka The Wasp, Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, Rene Russo as Frigga, John Slattery as Howard Stark, Tilda Swinton as The Ancient One, Hayley Atwell as Peggy Carter, Marisa Tomei as May Parker, Taika Waititi as Korg, Angela Bassett as Ramonda, Michael Douglas as Hank Pym, Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne, Linda Cardellini as Laura Barton, Maximiliano Hernandez as Jasper Sitwell, Frank Grillo as Brock Rumlow, Robert Redford as Alexander Pierce, Natalie Portman as Jane Foster, James Darcy as Edwin Jarvis, the first time a TV character from Marvel TV appears in an MCU film, by the way, Ty Simpkins as Harley Keener, Lexi Rabe as Morgan Stark, Emma Furman as Cassie Lang, and Hiroyuki Sanada as Akihiko. Right. <laughs> That's the cast. The screenplay was by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. It was directed by Joe and Anthony Russo, based on characters created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Joe Simon, Steve Englehart, Steve Gann, Bill Mantlow, Keith Giffen, Jim Starlin, Larry Lieber and Don Heck. Whew. Okay, so this episode it's probably going to be quite big and I'm just going to get on with it. So if you've listened to the previous episodes on the Avengers, I'm just going to quickly go through a quick list notes, really, our episode 97 on the Avengers. I talked about the remarkable group of people who made the Avengers into a team from characters who weren't meant to team up. Characters from different backgrounds blending together despite their differences to fight a common foe. In episode 98 on Avengers Age of Ultron, they faced a new villain, a villain of a hero's desire to build a suit of armour around the world, a hero surrounded by gods with a god complex, who created a monster in his own image, leading to the Avengers questioning his motives. That was Tony Stark, by the way. In episode 73, Captain America Civil War, a movie many deem Avengers 2.5, a split in the team based on the differences of opinion that have festered from Age of Ultron into a split of the team, one team legal, working under the Sokovia Accords, and the other are fugitives with the two leaders, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, no longer on speaking terms. 
In episode 99, Thanos finally arrived, and despite the best efforts of the Avengers, Thanos connected all the Infinity Stones and collected all the Infinity Stones and snapped half of the universe's population into dust. They were a team divided by betrayal, trust issues and differing loyalties, and now they were a team divided by death. Just what do you do when you've lost? Tony and Nebula are now stuck in space. Steve is running self-help groups for the survivors. Natasha is running a new team of Avengers. Bruce and Hulk have come to terms with each other's failings and merged into Professor Hulk. And Clint, well, Clint goes from being outside with his wife and children to being completely alone and then decides to take vengeance on those less than innocent. But I'm going to come back to all of those characters a little bit later. I mentioned last episode too that the Marvel retreats where they decided on a huge two-part Thanos story. But basically, if you haven't listened to episode 99, as I said, this is essentially the second part to that story. So I would highly recommend if you are literally coming into Endgame, please have a listen to Infinity War at the very least first because there's so much of the production of this movie that essentially takes place during Infinity War. So it really is a two-part podcast in many ways. So go back and listen to episode 99 if you haven't. Basically, the point of Endgame, the reason why we're here, is you can have infinite power, you can have a strategy, you can have great people on your side, and you can still lose. But maybe what makes a hero isn't winning. Maybe it's what you choose to do after you lose. In October 2014, Marvel Studios announced Avengers Infinity War Part 1 for a 4th of May 2018 release and Avengers Infinity War Part 2 for the 3rd of May 2019. Joss Whedon wouldn't be returning and instead, just before production started on Captain America Civil War, Marvel approached brothers Joe and Anthony Russo to direct what was then Infinity War Parts 1 and 2. Screenwriters Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who also wrote Captain America the First Avenger and The Winter Soldier and Civil War, signed on to write the screenplay for both parts of Infinity War. Now, as I said last episode, this at this point in the production, the films are a two-part Infinity War story. So there is a little bit of crossover between this episode and that episode. I am going to try and keep that to a minimum. I am going to try and focus predominantly on Endgame, but you have to kind of understand the situation between where they were at this point to where they're going to be going for Endgame. So at this point, the films are a two-part Infinity War story. Avengers Endgame was known as Avengers Infinity War Part 2 until May 2016, when it was revealed that the Russos were retitling the two films to avoid the misconception that this would be a two-part story, because in their eyes there was a distinct difference between the two that it would be a continuation of the story, but not the second part of that story, if that makes sense. It didn't have a title at this point. Avengers Infinity War Part 1 was renamed Avengers Infinity War, and this movie became untitled Avengers film. I mentioned last episode that Infinity War was based on Jim Starling's 1991 The Infinity Gauntlet comic, as well as the Infinity comic uh, 2013 run by Jonathan Hickman, and pretty much everything in the MCU up to this point had been guided by the comics in some way, loose adaptations of decades of source material. In many ways, Marvel Studios had the best of both worlds. It had decades of comic book history to pick and choose from, as well as the ability to have complete creative freedom to tell a specific story. Unlike a so-called faithful adaptation of an entire story, I'm thinking of something like Zack Snyder's Watchmen, which was almost 100% accurate to the graphic novel it was based on, apart from the ending, 
Marvel has taken popular characters and based the MCU around them while still keeping that canonical connection to the comic book history. Sure, Hank Pym didn't create Ultron in the MCU, but letting an established character like Tony do it and still give Ultron the daddy issues, it made sense for both of those characters, despite what you think of Age of Ultron. If Marvel wants to do Planet Hulk, well, they can insert bits of that into Thor Ragnarok and it enhances Hulk's character and thanks to Taika Waititi gives Thor someone comical to spar off. And yes, I will be coming to Thor on this podcast at some point. I'm not going to say when, but Thor is definitely coming. All three of them. The point I'm trying to make is that rather than see the comic books as the letter of the law, Marvel, Marvel Studios have been clever for the most part on how they adapt these stories. It pleases the comic book fan base who love the references and Easter eggs. It pleases the movie fans who want character continuity and good story arcs. They will, these existing storylines into what suits the movie universe, remain faithful to the spirit of the comics rather than emulating them perfectly. You could argue that this is why Marvel Studios have technically never made a bad MCU movie. Don't even try to come for the dark world, people. I have immense amounts of time for that movie. And Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely co-wrote that one too. So there's a lot to actually really like in Thor The Dark World. The point I'm getting to is that Marvel is so confident with these characters, with their arcs, and with the MacGuffins that they've set up over 22 movies and 11 years by this point, that Marcus and McFeely wrote Avengers Endgame to finish stories with satisfying conclusions, as well as appreciate the time constraints on writing a sequel to a movie that was, at that point, still filming. As I said last episode, the movies were filmed back to back with a short break in between. So the first quandary of Endgame, which was solved by Infinity War in the end, was where the major events of both movies would fall, the snap being the most obvious one. It needed to be at the end of Infinity War to give that movie a conclusion. It couldn't be an anticlimax and come too early in Infinity War to have the remaining characters with nothing to do. So Infinity War would finish with the snap and the remaining characters seeing the friends and colleagues disappear in heartbreaking fashion. And like Infinity War, Endgame would also start with a punch to the gut. The previously missing in action in Infinity War, Clint Barton at home having a barbecue and fun times with his family turns for a split second before his wife and children vanish into dust. Watching that in the cinema felt like Infinity War was tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, remember all this death? Fancy a bit more? And to children, no less. Out of the many plates Marcus and McFeely were spinning, it was the sense of finality for many of these characters that we had been with since the early days of the MCU. Endgame would be focused on the OG six Avengers and give them their dues. And one of the first things agreed was the death of Thanos very early on. Thanos had played his part, he had won his ending, and ultimately, he was a guy who had everything he could ever want. It was executive producer Trin Tran who suggested killing Thanos and doing it early on in Endgame. Another shock to an audience who should be, by now, used to shocks in these movies. If Thanos could easily win in Infinity War, he could also die easily at the start of Endgame. And of course, for the OG Avengers and for the others who weren't snapped, they truly believe that they have a chance to change the past by finding Thanos and undoing what he did. But with the Infinity Stones destroyed, Thor does essentially what he should have done last time. He aims for the head. And 
There's so many interesting character moments in this movie. These are characters, like I say, that we've been with for years and years. And I want to touch briefly on each of these OG Avengers and, and what their individual stories in this movie actually say. But Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely were interested in exploring the What If comics. And What If, if you don't know, it is an animated series which will be coming to Disney Plus very shortly. And this was their version, essentially, of What If. What if Clint becomes a eventual murderer? What if Natasha becomes hyper-focused on leading the only remaining team and family that she has? What if Thor became a depressed alcoholic? What if Steve is struggling to find purpose in this new world? What if Bruce and Hulk joined forces and worked together for a change? And what if Tony finally, finally gave up the superhero life for good? What if he abandoned his found family for his real family? How does five years of loss affect a team of superheroes who are used to winning? And this is obviously where the five-year time jump comes in, which was inspired by the TV shows Fargo and Lost, to catch up with these characters five years later and everything that comes with that five-year time jump. It was Kevin Feige's idea to use the Time Stone originally to play with time, to have a satisfactory conclusion to the OG Avengers stories. Having Tony invent a time machine was also suggested, but with Tony at this point happily married to Pepper, he's a father, he's living remotely away from that life now, it made no sense for him to just randomly create a time machine. It was only when they realised that they hadn't used Ant-Man yet, nor the Quantum Realm, that they realised that they had a real shot at getting time travel into Endgame. The one crucial element being that changes to the past don't alter the present and instead cause a variation in the timeline. The argument was if you have six MacGuffins and every time you go back it changes something in the future and then the future becomes unmanageable. They actually had physicists consult on the physics of time travel and most conceded that back to the future is wrong. That your past becomes your future and then your future then becomes your past. In the first draft they didn't go back to the original Avengers movie, they went to Asgard which, it's, which at a certain point contains the ether and the Tesseract but at but that point in time didn't allow for Thanos and his daughters to then pick up the orb, which was underwater on Morag. So this is why they chose to go back when Peter Quill was there. It was picking and choosing perfect moments from each of these past encounters with the stones to get them in a way that felt organic. But eventually going to 2012 New York just made sense from a story point of view, for which they also managed to persuade the legendary Robert Redford to come out of retirement to resume his role of Alexander Pierce. And this was something that no one knew was actually going to happen. It was so hush-hush. Everything on this movie, exactly like in Infinity War, was so secretive. Literally no one knew what was going to happen in this movie. So, newsflash for everyone, time travel does not currently exist. So it's... <laughs> I don't know if you know. So it's really hard to simultaneously debunk or confirm time travel theories in movies. But as Ant-Man was only in the quantum realm for five minutes to him, but five years in reality, technically time travel in this reality is possible. It's just the ability to plan where you're going to exit the quantum realm back into our own, back into our own reality without creating an alternate timeline. There's no grandfather paradox in this reality, but there is the issue of alternate branches of the timeline, as the Ancient One explains to Bruce. This creates a parallel timeline, a popular time travel theory in the field of quantum physics, the many worlds theory, or the multiverse theory. This is where the TV show Loki, I think, is going to come in, which, by the way, Loki's escape was not set up for the TV show. The idea for the TV show came after, 
And that escape proved the ideal setup for Loki to then get apprehended by the TVA. But this is ultimately why you can't go back in time and kill baby Thanos and why they have to return all the stones back to their rightful place at the right time so the past can then continue as it should. As Doctor Strange says, if I tell you what happens, it won't happen. If you knew the future, you could easily prevent it or change it. Ultimately, everything that happens is meant to happen. An Avengers Endgame is all about time. It's not just a time heist, but it's actually about valuing the time we have with people. As Tony Stark says, no amount of money ever bought a second of time. And I think sometimes we forget that, that it is, it is essentially a fun movie about time travel, really. But it is also about really valuing time, which is something that not many of us do. But I kind of feel like if the entire world was snapped out of existence, then maybe we would start to appreciate time a little bit more. And while arguably Endgame is here to pander to its audience, the team that were working on it knew that death was inevitable, especially for some of the OG Avengers. Everyone knew it would be the end for Tony Stark. Tony, moving towards his path of selflessness, died to bring everything back. It was the perfect end to Tony's ongoing arc, as well as providing finality to the story of Iron Man. To have Tony's end match up to Iron Man's beginnings, the ultimate idea was two characters crossing arcs. Cap starting on being completely selfless and going on a path of becoming more assertive and fighting for what he wants, and Tony starting as the genius billionaire play playboy philanthropist, finding real stakes and real responsibility to his wife and daughter and becoming completely selfless. In many ways, Tony had to die for Steve to get a chance at life. Essentially, a soul for a soul. Steve couldn't die in this movie because he's already been willing to die. He's proven that he would jump on that grenade. It was really all about the journey for Tony and, and essentially all about the journey for all of these characters. This is a movie that focuses on the OG Avengers for a reason, because they didn't really get focused on in Infinity War, because Infinity War was Thanos' movie, as I said last episode. This is their movie. This is their swan song. This is all about them and all about finalising their stories in completely different ways. It's not always about death, but death is quite final. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., obviously the stalwart of this whole universe, starting it back in 2008 and he really needed to be fully on board for Endgame's conclusion. He was the only cast member who received a complete script for Avengers Endgame because as last time with Infinity War this was a hugely complex movie with big surprises for fans, no one wanted leaks, no one wanted the secret out but also no actor wanted the pressure of knowing what was going to happen and be the person who leaked it accidentally. Additionally, Robert Downey Jr. was also responsible for one of the most memorable lines in the movie because one of his children told him that they loved him 3000. So it ended up in the script and it was something that Tony's daughter Morgan says. And it is one of the most well-known quotes of the movie. With Tony Stark's arc being the longest in the entire MCU and Robert Downey Jr.'s contribution being the biggest, Marcus and McFeely visited Robert Downey Jr. to pitch him the entire arc. At this point... Downey had just renewed his contract for Spider-Man Homecoming as well as the two additional Avengers movies. So pitching an ending for the character when Downey had just renewed his contract probably wasn't the ideal situation. And they admitted that Downey had mixed emotions on Tony's ending but totally accepted it and totally understood the reasons why. Tony Stark's final scene was shot in January 2019. It was a few months before the film was released. 
This was the scene where Tony obviously snaps his fingers. And originally when he snaps, he said nothing. And it didn't feel right that he said nothing to Thanos because Thanos obviously says that I am inevitable. And so they thought, no, Tony Stark would be quippy. He would come back with something. And editor Jeff Ford suggested going full circle and having him say, I am Iron Man. And Downey was hesitant at this. He didn't really want to say it because he thought it sounded really cheesy. But it was producer Joel Silver who convinced him that despite the lateness of the shoot and the emotion involved, because let's be honest, if you're an actor, you have to get back into that mindset of being the person who's going to save the entire universe. So it would be an incredibly taxing thing for Robert Downey Jr. to do. But Joel Silver convinced him that it would be the perfect end to the character. The new scene was shot at Raleigh Studios, which was adjacent to the soundstage where Robert Downey Jr. had first auditioned to play Iron Man more than a decade prior. So it felt very serendipitous. And at the time, Weta Digital was still working on finishing Endgame. Endgame was right to the wire. This was less than two weeks before its world premiere, but they managed to get the line in and it was worth it just to get that iconic line in the movie. Because I think at this point, many fans knew that it would be the end for either Tony or Steve or both. They both, that they both got fitting ends for their characters has always felt justified to me. Whether you think Steve getting his dance with Peggy was fan service, to be honest, the whole movie is fan service. But Steve postponed his life to fulfill his duty. Now he has a chance to be with the woman he loves. I'm, I'm here for that. I'm genuinely 100% here for that. I know that technically you could argue that him going back to Peggy creates then an alternate timeline. But I still have this belief, and I know it's not canonical because it's never been confirmed, but I really would like to believe that Steve was always Peggy's husband because we know that she married and she had children. Um, we know that Steve saved the man who would become her husband, but we never see pictures of her husband. We only see a photo of Steve on her desk at S.H.I.E.L.D. So thinking about it, there's a strong possibility that he could have gone back and that he could have created an alias and maybe they just could have been together or maybe that's just me romanticizing the situation and not thinking about it logically to be honest it doesn't matter <laughs> it just doesn't i am a big fan of steve and peggy and i always will be and let's be perfectly honest if you were peggy carter you would want to be with steve rogers because he is america's ass let's be honest which is obviously another very famous thing from this movie and there's so many quotes and there's so many little special things about this movie I can't mention all of them but I am going to try and mention as many as I can throughout this episode but I want to talk about the themes of found family because that's always been a staple of the Avengers to me that everyone came into the Avengers without something so they were missing something in their life whether that was a stable upbringing whether that was a loved one and it's kind of except for Clint. I am going to come back to Clint, but most of these people were kind of vagrants in a way. So you had Tony Stark, the everlasting bachelor, Steve Rogers, the man out of time, Bruce Banner, the elusive scientist, Natasha Romanoff, the child assassin, and even Thor. You know, Thor, yes, he's got a loving family. He struggles with a brother who literally keeps stabbing him in the back. But the point is that they've all lost something and they find something with each other. They become the something more that Nick Fury originally says. They become this family. And the family is tested. It splits and argues. But the core of the Avengers is, and excuse the use of the trademark Fast and Furious line, but it's all about family. Avengers 
Endgame goes to great lengths to eschew found family in favour of real family. It's one of the things that I kind of don't really like about the movie. Tony ends up with a wife and child. Steve obviously gets his girl and his dance and presumably marriage and children. Bruce finds harmony with the Hulk. Thor gets the guidance of the galaxy. Clint gets his wife and children back from the snap. But Natasha, again, she gets the short straw in this movie. And I spoke about Natasha in length in episode 98 on how that movie treats her. And I'm not going to repeat all of that. But Natasha's family is the Avengers. She gives up her life. She sacrifices herself in this movie because if she does, there's a real chance that everyone will get their families back. But the Avengers is her family. And I keep coming back to Clint. Why do I keep coming back to Clint? But these two characters, Clint and Natasha, they both have similar amounts of red in their ledger. Arguably, Natasha has done more to try and make a difference to that red more recently than Clint has. I do genuinely believe that jumping for Clint is something that Natasha would do. And I don't doubt that. I don't doubt their love for each other. And I like that platonic love is still classed as love for the soul stone in the very least. But whether Natasha would do it or not, she should not have been the one to do it. I still think it should have been Clint. But Gamora had already died on Vormir to serve the purpose of a man. Don't let Natasha die in the same way, in the same place. It always just felt very, very wrong to me. Because Natasha, for many people, has always been the beating heart of the Avengers. She's the person in this movie specifically who keeps everything ticking along. She's still doing that in Endgame. She keeps everything going. This is her life. This was her family. This was everything. There was much discussion during the production on, over whether it should have been Clint or Natasha. A draft was written with Clint going over. It was visual effects producer Jen Underdahl who read it and stated that they shouldn't take the opportunity to reunite the Avengers family away from Natasha. They agreed having Clint die would be melodramatic. And it was also written fully in the knowledge that Scarlett Johansson would be getting her own solo Black Widow movie, which is one of the reasons why Natasha didn't get a funeral. But given everything Natasha has done to try and make amends for her past, and Clint not doing anything to make amends for his recent past yet, the family argument is moot as far as I'm concerned. A woman's worth is not based on how many children she has at home. Natasha brought more to the team. Natasha did not deserve to die on Vormir. I mentioned Sacrifice last episode and how only Thanos seemed willing to make it. I feel like Endgame was positioning Clint to make the sacrifice and I personally think that the movie should have gone through with Clint making that sacrifice. But obviously Clint's going to have his own TV show, so <laughs> clearly that, that decision was, was changed. But I don't want to carry on ranting <laughs> about how I feel about Natasha. There is a Black Widow movie coming and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens to Natasha earlier on in her story. It's just a shame that we know that she's going to die because, you know, having essentially one woman on the team you kind of have a responsibility for all womankind in that one female character. And arguably, yes, other female characters have since joined. There are plenty of women. I'm going to come to the women, a specific scene, uh, a little bit later. But Natasha was the only OG Avenger that was a woman. And I just feel like they just did her dirty. But I'm not going to dwell on Natasha. Anyway, let's talk about Thor. So... Thor's story in Endgame is probably the most heartwarming as well as 
kind of a bit frustrating, actually. I like that they've depicted a character who's descended into depression and alcoholism over his guilt and loss and trauma. I don't mean that I like it because I like people being depressed, but I like that they actually depicted that. I don't like the constant fat jokes, but I do like that despite his obvious mental health issues, he is still worthy. Thor started out in this whole universe, the arrogant heir of Asgard, and he's found self-worth by giving. You know, he's experienced extreme loss, and yet he is still worthy of love and acceptance, and he's not defined by his past mistakes. He starts his movie aching for revenge, but revenge is not what he expected it to be. He also grows in his appreciation of others as well. So he's gone from the nervousness of Cap possibly lifting Mjolnir in Age of Ultron to enthusiastically cheering for Cap as he wields Mjolnir in Endgame. And I am going to talk about that scene later as well. So Bruce, Bruce has found harmony living with the Hulk rather than working against Hulk. I'd have liked to actually see what happened for them to find that best of both worlds persona. Apparently it was something that they were going to do in Infinity War. They had this whole scene planned where this version of Bruce and Hulk together would start fighting in Wakanda, but it was scrapped from the movie. I didn't mention that last episode. I probably should have. Let's be honest, I missed out a lot last episode. <laughs> and I know that I did because when the episode was released, I thought to myself, oh, I didn't talk about this. I didn't talk about that. I am not going to be able to talk about everything in these movies, but I want to focus on certain things. And I really, really like this Professor Hulk character, mainly because we've seen from Bruce starting out in the Avengers, hiding in India, to now Avengers Endgame, sharing a body with Hulk and taking selfies with kids. Bruce is one of the only characters who's actually moved on, like properly moved on. And he's responded to life after the snap with a, a level of positivity, which is actually really nice for the character. I just wish that we'd have seen a little bit more. It's really frustrating because there's so much that you could say, I want to see more, but it's practically impossible for the Russo brothers to deliver everything that we could possibly want. Ultimately, Endgame delivers. <laughs> I'm just being really, really picky. I suppose we need to talk about Clint. Let's talk about the Clint in the room. So Clint arguably the least powered person on the team, he actually became one of the biggest threats post Thanos over his revenge massacres, taking on the Yakuza and essentially blaming these Yakuza for not being snapped. It leans deeply into the can heroes be killers theme. Clint as Ronin takes no prisoners. He doesn't accept pleas for forgiveness or mercy because in his eyes, his children weren't given that choice. It's something that once the time heist succeeds, and Clint does get his family back, that's not really kind of delved into or investigated or there's no further discussion on what Clint's done. I am hoping though that his TV show will afford a little bit more into how Clint's only past actually does define his future. And I waxed lyrical about Gamora last episode because Zoe Saldana really was the MVP of Infinity War. I will not have my mind changed on that by the way. And Nebula is really given a chance to shine in Endgame. Karen Gillan is so underappreciated as Nebula and I think her character development in the scene with Tony Stark playing games on the ship and Nebula finally winning something, you know, no cheating, no chances, just a fair and square win. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie, genuinely. I would have loved to have more Nebula in this movie. The fact that she unwillingly betrays everyone via herself, the fact that all Nebulas are linked, 
Karen Gillan's only been in three movies and she's progressed Nebula into being a character that chooses the side of good, chooses to love, despite, like her sister, being born of abuse and actual physical pain in Nebula's case. I talked a little bit about Thanos abusing his daughter's last episode and it was something that I really, really wanted to go into because I think the movies skip over this quite a lot. We forget that Gamora and Nebula were abused for years and years by Thanos and Nebula always got off worse because Gamora was Thanos' favourite daughter. So Nebula, she has every right to be bitter. She has every right to be evil. She has every right to not want to be part of the good side and she chooses to do it. The fact that Nebula gives Tony the last morsel of food on the ship, she learns how to be selfless and if you think about it, Along with the rat in Scott's van, she's kind of the unsung hero of Endgame because she keeps Tony alive long enough for Captain Marvel to save them. And just on Captain Marvel, I love Carol Danvers. I love that she's hugely powerful. You will hear no Captain Marvel slander on this podcast. She got beat by Fury and she showed up. And additionally, the shooting schedule for Endgame meant that Brie Larson shot her scenes as Captain Marvel in Endgame before she shot her actual scenes as Captain Marvel in her own movie. And yeah, I I love Captain Marvel. <laughs> I think she's awesome. I think having the female characters in this movie that have the real power, we saw it last time in Infinity War with Wanda being probably the only character who could have really bested Thanos. And even in this movie, when Wanda comes back, Thanos actually has to cheat and rain fire on all of his troops and everyone else just to stop her. So there is some serious female power going on and I am going to come back to that female scene, I promise. It's towards the end of the podcast, I'm going to come back to that. So, as I said last time, this episode is going to be a bit choppy. I am going to go a little bit back and forth. But principal photography on Avengers Endgame started on the 10th of August 2017 at Pinewood Atlanta Studios, Georgia. The Stark family cabin was in Fairburn, Georgia and the Gulch area of downtown Atlanta the Five Points Martyr Station, Piedmont Park and the Porsche Experience Centre in Atlanta were all used as filming locations. Production wrapped on the 11th of January 2018 with reshoots taking place from September to October 2018. These reshoots would change some bits and add some bits. One of the things that was changed was actually the aforementioned scene between Natasha and Clint at Vormir because originally Thanos sends his army to stop Clint and Natasha from getting the Soul Stone, but this was then changed to become the sacrifice that we see in the movie. They also adjusted the look of the two versions of Nebula to make it clearer to the audience that there was a good Nebula and a bad Nebula. But again, Nebula, underrated MVP of this movie. As last movie, Ari Alexa IMAX digital cameras had been used before on the airport scene in Civil War. They were, for the first time ever, used in both Infinity War and Endgame for the entirety of the shoot and in doing so became the first movies ever shot completely with them. Trent Opelock served as director of photographer on both movies and the footage digitally processed by IMAX was released in a 1 to 90 to 1 aspect ratio exclusively in IMAX cinemas. Like with the Avengers, a mix of tall and short characters meant that the aspect ratio served everyone as well as including the landscapes. Unlike the three camera setup used on the Captain America movies, Infinity War and Endgame was shot mostly with a single camera setup. So at this point, in production, and I appreciate I'm going a bit back and forth, in production terms, 
The movie was still called Untitled Avengers Movie. The first trailer for the movie in December 2018 announced that the Untitled Avengers Movie was going to be called Avengers Endgame. There had been huge speculation by fans. There had been fan theories. There had been title guesses. But ultimately, Avengers Endgame became the title. Visual effects were created by, as always, Industrial Light and Magic, Weta Digital, as I said, Digital Domain, Lola VFX, Framestore, Cinesite, Cantina Creative, loads and loads of, loads and loads of visual effects studios involved. As with the other movies, including Captain America, Lola VFX worked on digitally de-aging sequences. So Endgame features 200 de-aging and aging effects. All of the Avengers were de-aged for the New York 2012 scenes. Michael Douglas, John Slattery and the late Stan Lee were de-aged for 1970 New Jersey. This was the last Marvel cameo that Lee filmed before his death in November 2018. Hayley Atwell was aged up for 1970 New Jersey. Robert Downey Jr. was given an emaciated appearance for the start of the movie to look like he was close to death. Even the suits that the Avengers wear for the time heist are all CG. There is a lot of CG in this movie. A total of 1,400 visual effects artists worked for 16 weeks to create the final battle sequence alone. That's including nothing else. That's just the final battle. Honestly, as final battles go, there's nothing quite like Cap hearing Sam say on your left. I watched Avengers Endgame over New Year and I timed midnight. I was a few minutes off for Sam's on your left because I kind of felt, well, 2020 was a terrible year. 2021 surely has got to be on your left. And as I said, the women of Marvel scene, I love it. I know that a lot of people think it's pandering. I really don't care. <laughs> I just love to see a scene with so many amazing women banding together, doing what women do. Women get sh done, people. That is a fact. I adore that scene. Does it make sense in the general scheme of things? No, not really. The fact that all of those women just happen to be in the same place at the same time. No, it doesn't make sense. But you know what? This is a movie about a time heist. Nothing makes sense. That is these movies in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely love that scene. There is not a lot that, about this movie that I don't love. The final VFX was actually the addition of Howard the Duck. Howard was included three days before post-production finished. And as I said, the timescales for this movie were so incredibly tight. I mean, it wasn't quite a cat situation because quite famously, they were still working on cats the day before it premiered. It wasn't quite that bad, but yeah, the timescales were incredibly tight, but they still managed to include Howard the Duck. Just to kind of go back on something that I mentioned in Infinity War, that Avengers Endgame does technically sort of prove that Thanos was right. In it's mentioned at the start of the movie that the waters are cleaner, that whales are seen in the Hudson. Half of the people is half of the pollution, half of the waste, half of the food and natural resources. Now I'm not saying that genocide is right, because let's be honest, it never is. But the other thing that Endgame kind of fails to do is it fails to address the awkward situations for people who'd moved on post the snap, maybe gone on to meet someone new, have a family, and then Obviously, the Avengers do this time heist, they return all of these people, and then their previously deceased partner then turns up on their doorstep. Like, how does that work in real life? But, you know, these are minor foibles. Endgame is great. I love it. After the shock of Infinity War, 
It's like this heroic cleansing palette, almost, filled with the greatest hits of Marvel. You know, Marvel Studios waited to bring out these big guns. And I'm so glad that they did, because we ended up with a movie where not only did we have someone like Captain America wield Mjolnir, we also had an iconic Avengers Assemble, which is something that I'm glad that they didn't do sooner, because if they'd have done this at the end of the Avengers in 2012, it would have been like, okay, cool, that's fun, we'll move on. The fact that they took their time and they purposely placed it at the end of this Infinity Saga, it's just chef's kiss, as far as I'm concerned. It is the perfect fan service movie, as well as being a really enjoyable movie in its own right. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves and Avengers Endgame basically borrowed the plot of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So if you haven't seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they go back to the past and they basically get things, they pick up people and they get things to fix their future. Because if they don't, they're not going to become the utopia creating heroes that they were always meant to be. You could argue that the time travel isn't quite the same, but don't be bogus about it, guys. Avengers Endgame saw Keanu in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and they were like, look, we want to nick that. So <laughs> that is the best possible way that I can link Keanu Reeves to Avengers Endgame. Let's quickly go through all of the other bits and pieces. The music, Alan Silvestri. So Alan Silvestri did the score for the Avengers. He did not do Avengers Age of Ultron, but he then did both Infinity War and Endgame, which he recorded at the Abbey Road Studios in London with the London Symphony Orchestra. It is a fantastic score. Every single version of the score builds on what's going on at the time. And this is it's just a really, really epic score. I love it. Marketing. So the marketing campaign for Endgame included promotional partners like Audi, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Google, MasterCard, and ended up costing over $200 million. That was the most for any Marvel Studios film up to that point. And with Infinity War ending so seemingly finitely, there were questions how Marvel would promote Endgame without spoiling the movie or giving away what happens to the dusted characters. Kevin Feige confirmed in June 2018 that no dusted characters would be featured in any of the marketing material because, as I said, it was purely focused on the OG Avengers. The anticipation for Endgame surpassed Infinity War and Marvel's marketing department probably didn't even need to generate any buzz because the fans were doing that. There were endless theories and speculation on the plot of Endgame. So many articles, a lot of them clickbait, let's be honest, but the fans were wild for this movie before it was even out. And when it did come out, it had its world premiere at the Los Angeles Convention Center in its Hall K on the 22nd of April, 2019. Hall K was converted into a 70 foot screen with Dolby Vision projectors and a Dolby Atmos sound system. This was installed especially for the premiere. The center also was used for the red carpet arrival and for the after party as well. So it was very much a three for one deal. The film was released wide in the UK on the 25th of April, and in the US on the 26th of April in IMAX and 3D. This was after being pushed forward from a 3rd of May release. And you know, Avengers Endgame did okay at the box office. You know, it grossed 858.3 million in the US and Canada, only 1.939 billion elsewhere in the world for a pretty mediocre average worldwide total of $2.798 billion. It became the highest grossing film of all time 
at that point until it was surpassed by Avatar in 2021. As I mentioned, last episode, Endgame doubled Infinity War's record opening and it became the first film to hit $1 billion and $1.5 billion in five days and eight days respectively. It took 11 days to gross $2 billion. The film would break even after only five days of release, which was unheard of for a major studio tentpole during opening weekend. Deadline Hollywood would go on to estimate the net profit for Avengers Endgame at a measly rubbish, I mean, I've got this literally in my drawer, $890 million. And they also placed it first on their most valuable blockbusters of 2019. I'm being facetious, clearly. This movie was a huge, enormous success. It made so much money. And I mean, to quote Thanos, it was kind of inevitable that it would. Because Avengers Endgame became more than just a movie. It became an experience. It also became a community. Many people went to multiple showings, many of which were literally jam-packed full of fans, experiencing all of these emotions together. And this was regardless of age, gender, sexual orientation, skin colour. It may sound glib to say that a series of movies can bring people together, but I genuinely believe that these sorts of movies can. And while the MCU does need to move forward in terms of representation of people of colour and LGBTQ people, the fandom has kind of always felt a bit more inclusive than some other fandoms on the internet. I mean, not that there are, are problematic people in the fandom, because there always will be problematic people, but the experience of Endgame as a fan was mostly positive. And I think that speaks to these movies and about how positive these movies make people feel. That essentially, like I say, these movies are about family. They are about found family. And fandom can sometimes be found family. Critically, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, just a percentage point below Black Panther, and slightly higher than Infinity War as well. General consensus was that the critics and fans love this movie. And this is despite knowing that there are people who don't. Hi, Nick if you're listening. <laughs> uh, I have to shout out Nick because Nick, wonderful man, he hosts a podcast called Nikolai's Kitchen and he also did live stream for The Cure, which I was involved in this year. I did an hour on Avengers Endgame, but Nick is not a fan of this movie and yet he still sat with me and we still chatted Avengers Endgame. Nick is a wonderful person. Please don't go hating on him for hating this movie, by the way. I will not stand for that because he's wonderful. But if he is listening, I doubt he is because I know he doesn't like this movie. But if he is, hi, Nick. <laughs> I, I respect your opinion. It's wrong, but I respect it. Awards time. Avengers Endgame received 108 awards nominations, including an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, which it lost to 1917, a BAFTA for Best Special Visual Effects, which it also lost to 1917. It would go on to win 37 awards, including a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Action Performance by a Stunt Ensemble in a Motion Picture. And we always forget to talk about stunts, but the stunts are incredible in this movie, as always, and Infinity War. Marvel Studios know how to do fantastic stunts. Let's be completely honest. And stunt performers are so undervalued by the industry. So yeah, congratulations to the stunt ensemble. Obviously there is no sequel to Endgame, 
Because if there was, there would be an episode 101. There is going to be an episode 101, by the way. I'm not saying that there isn't. But uh, Spider-Man Far From Home did provide an epilogue to what a world with Tony Stark would be like. And phase four of the MCU officially starts with Black Widow. So it's due out after being delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic on the 9th of July 2021. No other Avengers movies have been planned at this stage, at the point of recording, but Kevin Feige has confirmed it will happen at some point. Right, let's go into social media thoughts, and I'm expecting quite a few. But let's see, because there weren't that many for Infinity War, but then Thanos did snap 50% of those away. Let's start with the patrons, though. So we'll start with Andy, as always. And Andy says... The most interesting thing about Avengers Endgame is that it took all of the complex emotions, action and storytelling of Infinity War and amplified them by 10. A very satisfying conclusion to 11 years of storytelling that has the honour of being the single greatest theatre-going experience I've ever had. The audience was on the edge of their seat all night and erupted when Cap finally said the words we've been waiting for for years. Avengers, assemble. He then goes on to say, Congratulations on 100 episodes. Don't. I'm looking forward to what the next 100 will bring and also await the time where you and I can work together again. Um, <laughs> I'm getting teary. It's ridiculous. And out of respect, I won't make some lame joke about the 1998 Avengers, but of course I'll make mention about it. It is inevitable. Much love to this fantastic podcast and the journey that I've had the honour of listening to from the beginning and the amazing lady behind it. Stop. Stop. Okay. I said I'd read your comment in its entirety, but <clears throat> okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to plug Geek Salad now. Andy is one of the most amazing human beings on the whole planet. Clearly, as you can tell, he and I are very good friends. He has literally been there for me since pretty much day one and I'm so grateful to Andy for his constant support with this podcast and for making me teary. I even messaged him and said, when I read this out, I'm probably going to get all teary. And of course it happened. So obviously, if you're not listening to Geek Salad, then you should be listening to Geek Salad because they are an incredible podcast. They cover everything that you could ever think of. Movies, music, TV, games, consoles, literally everything. I will pop a link to them in the show notes, but... Andy is a really great guy. They are all fantastic people over at Geek Salad. So please do me a solid and listen to their podcast. And we have another comment from Brendan who says, Avengers Endgame is a three hour character drama about dealing with trauma and depression that gets interrupted by a heist movie and then proceeds to carry both of those things to their most satisfying possible conclusion. It's a borderline miracle that they stuck the landing so well as emphasised by other conclusions that same year which did not. And it's just an avalanche of payoff for over a decade of ongoing narrative. But like the first Avengers, if taken on its own self-contained story, it still genuinely works. Even if you're caught up enough to know why Hope calling Steve Cap is a neat callback, if there were never another Avengers movie after this one, it would be a darn near perfect note to go out on. As it is, the young Avengers or new Avengers or whoever takes up the mantle next sure has some big shoes to fill. And thank you so much for your comment, Brendan. Brendan doesn't have a podcast, but he is a wonderful person. And more wonderful patrons have given their comments too. And we're going to go over now to Claudia. And you may remember 
back in the episode that I did on the Avengers that Claudia's comment was incredibly long. Well, Claudia has surpassed herself um, and this is also incredibly long. Um, I have trimmed it down a little bit, but otherwise it's pretty much exactly Claudia's vision for her comment on Endgame. So here's what Claudia says. She says, Congratulations on your 100th episode. I'm so, so, so damn proud of you. Not only for the first 99 episodes, but because you chose Endgame as your 100th episode. It's an intense film and I apologise in advance for what I'm about to write. I honestly cannot remember a film having an intense lead up as Endgame had. Everything from December of 2018 to April, May of 2019 was Endgame, Endgame, Endgame. It was a struggle to keep spoiler free, but that was part of the fun. As with the other Avengers films, the positive reviews had me excited. But I tried to remain calm. It didn't work. I was ridiculously excited for the movie. The film blew us away. I'm a crier and I found out my eye makeup was not waterproof. I looked like a damn raccoon by the end of the night. And the tears began at the very start when we got a personal look at the snap. You know, because Infinity War wasn't traumatic enough with Clint. The scenes between Nebula and Tony were warm and sweet and so sad. The showdown between Steve and Tony was years in the making and did not disappoint. It was painful to see it and it made me super uncomfortable, but that was the point. We knew the breakup of the team after Civil War would have dire consequences, but I don't think anyone thought it would be as bad as it was. No one could destroy the Avengers but themselves, and I argue this is exactly what happened. I was especially heartbroken with the simple scenes between Rocket and Nebula and Thor's brokenness. It was an awesome example of show-me-don't-tell-me methodology. The realistic portrayal of trauma completely blew me away and made me cry. This was a shadow of what was to come. We were accustomed to having a quick resolution of problems and I believe the denouement with the remaining Avengers and a decimated Thanos was anticlimactic but worked well. The Avengers had to deal with the consequences of their hubris and stubbornness and it was painful to see the high cost of their actions in Civil War. There was an audible gasp when we saw the five years later scene. The Russos brilliantly demonstrated the effects of five years of complete decimation. I especially loved seeing the abandoned baseball stadium in New York City. Being an ardent baseball fan, this scene affected me the most because that just doesn't happen. We weren't bombarded by unnecessary scenes of trauma. The scenes were subtle but brutal. I loved, loved, loved Natasha's leadership role. This was an aspect of comic Natasha that I felt was skipped in the films and was happy to see her firmly placed as a leader. She tried to keep the team together and was successful, which wasn't a surprise. I appreciated her show of emotions. She was fulfilling an impossible distressing role essentially alone as Tony, Steve and Bruce were attempting to move on and Clint was off on his gap year vigilante role. Natasha was, in essence, carrying out the role of the Avengers were to fill as Fury stated. The idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could become something more. She was doing something more. I love the scenes we got between Natasha and Steve. While I was, am, a closeted Steve-Natasha shipper, I saw the friendship as the strongest within the MCU. We saw their closeness from the first Avengers film develop into this stunning level of intimacy. We aren't party to the nature of their relationship, although I will point out the awkward scene between Natasha, Steve and Bruce as vindication of my shipper ideas, but we know that they are super close and fulfilling a basic need of friendship. Other than Natasha, the other character who destroyed me was Thor. I would argue that Thor's trauma was much more palpable. His decline was, at the time, surprising, but in hindsight, not so much. Thor's portrayal was painfully on point. He was never going to heal properly because he had enablers, as well-intentioned as Korg and the others thought they were, they still enabled him, and needed the push Hulk and Rocket gave him. The team's interaction while formulating their plan was so emotive. I loved the team's excitement and their blind hope that they were going to be successful. It was almost fun. I truly had the hope that maybe, maybe it would all be okay. I would have been, of course, horribly wrong. The extraction of the stones was brilliant, and I think it was a stroke of genius to bring Frigga back. 
I loved her and her blunt advice for Thor. It's sage advice that lives rent-free in my head. There's this angelic, serene quality to Frigga so much that even Rocket was enthralled for a bit. It was nice to see that Thor had some closure. I have no idea why my mind completely shut out the events of Mormia until I saw Red Skull. I remember my heart dropping and me hyperventilating in the cinema while whispering, please don't let it be Tasha, please don't let it be Tasha, while Natasha and Clint had their heartbreaking fight on the cliff. Totally not ashamed to tell you that I cried so hard when Natasha jumped that I missed the next few minutes. I was inconsolable. Black Widow has been my favourite character since the age of eight and she was gone. I can't possibly explain how devastated I was. I didn't like the fact that Natasha died, but I do understand why it had to be her. I can appreciate that the idea of the one who loves the most has nothing to do with the physical relationship. Endgame was an amazing film and I doubt that we will ever see anything that huge, even from the MCU. I mean, what other film could have us up till 3am when we sat to be at work at 6am? Never did I think it was going to be amazing as it was, and yes, I still cry at every rewatch. I mean, wow. I mean, that comment was so much longer. <laughs> I had to trim it down quite a bit. But as always, Claudia, you've surpassed yourself. I love you, sis, so much. Um, right, let's move on to some more Patreon comments because we have quite a few Patreon comments, actually. Um, we're going to move on to brand new patron, Sam. Sam is from Movie Reviews in 20 Qs, and he says... Nowhere near as tight of a story as Infinity War, but still a massive cinematic spectacle of what I, and pretty much every other kid who grew up reading the comics, thought was impossible. I love it 3,000. And obviously, I'm going to give a little bit of a plug for movie reviews in 20 Qs. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, you really need to, because honestly, it's one of the funniest, most brilliant, most unique premises for a podcast that I've ever heard. I've been on that podcast twice and both times I've just had the best time with Sam and Liz. But it's not just Sam and Liz, sometimes Kahu comes along, sometimes Matthew comes along, sometimes Stacy comes along as well. And it's just so much fun and it's just so, so brilliant. So yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes for movie reviews in 20 Qs and you should definitely check it out. Right, we have another patron comment from Scott and he says, much in the same way as I felt about Infinity War, this was another giddy thrill ride. And once again, the power of the shared experience on the big screen elevating it further. It did everything a victory lap should do. The tips of the hat to previous adventures, especially some of the familiar faces returning. I'm not sure if I was more excited for Robert Redford, Tilda Swinton or Korg. Who am I kidding? It was Korg. It was a lot of fun as well as a number of moments that brought a tear to my eye. And I don't think there was anyone without an enormous grin on their face when the moment Cat lit me on here too on your left. All elevated by Alan Silvestri's score. Portals is an absolute goosebump-inducing series highlight. For me, it felt like it closed the Infinity Saga perfectly. And Scott is one of the hosts of Monkey See, Monkey Review. It's a podcast that's all about the films and the experience of watching films. And it's basically just some really lovely guys chatting about films that they've watched recently. I've mentioned on previous podcasts that Scott and I have met in real life. We've been for coffee and Scott and I are going to see Black Widow together. And I'm really excited about going to see Black Widow. But I'm also really excited to see Scott because he's a really cool guy and we get on super well. I will put a link to Monkey See Monkey Review in the show notes. And finally, the final Patreon comment is from Derek. And Derek says, On paper, this movie should not work. Crazy time travel mechanics, super huge runtime, packed with intertextual nostalgia, and yet somehow it works beautifully. I'll never forget On Your Left and the roar of the theatre as Black Panther enters the battlefield. And Derek and his amazing wife, Laurel, 
They host the incredible podcast called The Midnight Myth. The Midnight Myth is one of the greatest podcasts ever. I genuinely adore it. I've also been on that podcast as well. Uh, We talked about Labyrinth. It was a lot of fun. But yeah, they talk about history and mythology and philosophy and and how those topics kind of weave their way into popular culture. Uh, They are a fascinating podcast. You will genuinely learn something from every episode. So as always, I will put a link in the show notes. And I'll basically put a link in the show notes for everyone who's uh, a podcast, who's a patron, just to kind of give you a little bit of a nudge in the right direction. But we have more comments. We are moving over to Twitter and the Film Effect podcast at Film Effect Pod, who say, Best theatre experience of all time, seeing this at midnight on release day. It was just me and 399 fellow nerds celebrating the culmination of 20 plus films over the last decade. To say that we left that theatre satisfied would be a serious understatement. We were blown the F away. I'm not going to say swear words, but yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, And at Jonathan Blade said, It still stands as our last positive global shared media experience and lives at the top of Marvel's real world event movies, Endgame, Black Panther, The Avengers. Endgame balances emotions, narrative and spectacle in a way that makes the insane runtime inconsequential. Right, and we, we have comments on Instagram this time. We hardly ever get comments on Instagram. But we do have at Friendly Sparpod who said, I've seen this movie no less than three times and cried like a baby every single time. You know the part. It's truly remarkable how they can cram so many characters and storylines and still manage to make everyone seem meaningful and important. At Contrarian Prime said, Perfection. The way it pays off the entire MCU run-up till then is remarkable and the ending leaves me a blubbering mess every time. It's also such an epic passing of the torch to the next generation of Earth's heroes. You can rest, Tony. They got it from here. We also have aforementioned Nick at Nikolai's Kitchen. It's it's not going to be a positive comment, I know, before I even start reading. But <laughs> I love you, Nick. Nick says, It's terrible. The post-apocalyptic aesthetic is nonsense. The story has to make excuses to nerf its most powerful character in Captain Marvel. Brie Larson is woefully underutilised. It makes Thor fat and a joke. And the blip, or whatever it's called, is the worst writing in the entire MCU. Bringing back everyone five years later after life has moved on without them is nightmarishly selfish on Tony's part. Imagine the logistics of that for a second. That the world has been producing goods and services for half the population and suddenly the population doubles. There'd be food shortages and all sorts of chaos, not to mention the emotional damage it would inevitably cause. I still maintain he should have died in Infinity War. More, the final battle is a joke. It's absolute visual noise, the movie. Thanos sums it up perfectly to Scarlet Witch when she blames him for ruining her life. I don't even know who you are. Beating an alternate Thanos feels like a cop-out. It's just such a bad movie, and yes, The Phantom Menace is better. Nick. (laughs) It's a good job you're literally one of the sweetest, nicest guys in the world. Um... And he is, by the way. Nick Haskins is genuinely one of the loveliest men in the entire world. Um, But I absolutely respect his opinion. He has been always brutally honest that he does not like this movie. And, you know, you've got to have a fair balance of comments. And Nick has balanced the comments out beautifully. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. And finally, we have at SP underscore film viewers who say, That portal scene gives me the goosebumps and hits right in the feels every time. Pure epicness. 
We don't have any comments on Facebook. Claudia's was from Facebook, but she's obviously in the Patreon comments. So we don't have any comments on Facebook, but just really uh, such a huge, massive thank you to everyone who's given their comments on Endgame, even Nick. Um, and yeah, just everyone who's ever really given a comment for the last 100 episodes. But I'm always so grateful to everyone who gives a comment. Um, and 100 episodes feels like a super big deal. So just a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to do it for this episode, because I genuinely do appreciate the fact that you have. Avengers Endgame, unlike some other lengthy superhero movies, is completely there to pay tribute to and to service its fans, the people that have been loyal to the MCU since the start, and it delivers on that service without sacrificing the character development and organic emotion that grounds the MCU. It's about the aftermath of grief, when you want vengeance, but where does vengeance get you? Nowhere. It's a serious look into grief and the different outlets grief can be channeled into, depression, overworking, desensitisation, revenge and acceptance that turns into a fun, nostalgia-driven second act, like a best-of-show reel, and then into this heart-thumping third act with a huge final battle to end all battles. Endgame is a genuine celebration of everything before it, and will be unlike anything that comes after. For all its eye-popping splendour and moments of brevity, you care about these characters, and while we might not agree with their endings, Natasha especially, you appreciate why they're there. Everyone involved in every faction of Marvel Studios, all the years of hard work, all the ideas, all the risk-taking, and the sheer love that's gone into this cinematic universe by the whole of this studio, but mostly by Kevin Feige, is astonishing. This is a true love letter to the fans, and it will be a while before anything of this magnitude is attempted again. This is the culmination of 11 years and 22 movies of an interconnected universe of films, interconnected universe of films, characters, MacGuffins, plot devices, relationships. It needed an epic conclusion. Endgame needed to stick the landing. And it does. Thank you for listening to this 100th episode and to any of the preceding 99 episodes. I'm not going to dwell, honestly. I'm just genuinely so grateful that you've been with me for at least one of those last 100 episodes. Um, and as always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Avengers Endgame. If you did enjoy this episode, despite the length, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by other people by just simply telling a friend about this podcast, especially if they're an Avengers fan, because you never know, they might find something that they like in these episodes. You can also retweet or like posts on social media, or you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And if you did like this episode on Avengers Endgame, then, of course, you're going to like some of the other episodes focused on Marvel movies. Episode 68, Black Panther. Episodes 71, 72, 73 on the three Captain America movies. Episode 97 on the Avengers. Episode 98, Avengers Age of Ultron. Episode 99, Avengers Infinity War. I don't need to tell you why you should listen to those episodes. I am incredibly proud of all of them. I'm incredibly proud that I've done 100 episodes of a podcast. But as always, give me feedback. Let me know if you think I got my recommendations right. Can't recommend everything. But yeah, I'm ridiculously happy and a little bit overwhelmed right now, in all honesty. I am going to be taking a break now for a week or so to basically rest after all of this avenging. 
because covering four Avengers movies, as well as WandaVision, which was recently released exclusive to patrons, I've been working a lot. So I am going to go on a break, but coming up after my break, it's kind of the obvious choice after all of these heroes. Because what about the anti-hero? What about the guy who would want to take on Thanos, but would probably turn up a bit late? So the next episode of Verbal Diorama is going to be on Deadpool. Because obviously I'd follow up all these Marvel heroes with the character that they introduced by sewing his mouth shut in X-Men Origins Wolverine. And the reason I chose Deadpool is mainly because it's a character that Ryan Reynolds literally came out of the womb playing. So it is going to be time to make the chimmy effing changas. But if you look very closely, there may be a special episode coming before Deadpool. But you didn't hear that from me. Or, well, you did hear that from me because I just said it. But there is a special bonus episode coming. It is technically going to be episode 101. Deadpool's going to be 102. But I'm not making this known on social media. So if you're listening, then you are one of only a few people who currently know about this. And it's incredibly special. It's about an incredibly special movie. It's about an incredibly special making of that movie. And it's got some incredibly special guests as well, including an incredibly special interview with someone. So look out for that before Deadpool. But I am not going to be promoting that on social media at all. So that is between you and me. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But if you see it, you will know what it is. And you will love it. I guarantee. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. As I said, patrons got a an exclusive episode recently on WandaVision. I've had some lovely comments about that episode on WandaVision and patrons are going to be getting exclusive episodes going forward. And so if you are interested in becoming a patron, you can sign up at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And as always, a huge, massive thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama, some of whom who have been supporting me since December of 2019. I am so incredibly grateful to all of you. So to Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan, and brand new patron Sam, who signed up a couple of days ago as a Ted Theodore Logan patron, and then he upped that tier to another dollar, so he basically got Bill S. Preston Esquire for free. Sam, you are excellent! Uh, <laughs> but all of you guys are excellent. And as always, I will do whatever it takes to mention you at the end of these episodes. You can check out my merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me if you want to say hello. If you want to say congratulations on 100 episodes and make me cry, then it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to the website, verbaldiorama.com. 
And as always, a little plug for film stories. I write for their magazine. I write for their website. I don't just do a podcast. I also write stuff too. So there is a brand new issue of the magazine coming soon. So make sure you check that out and make sure you pop onto that website and have a look at articles and stuff. And finally, I love you 3000. Oh, I didn't expect that to set me off. <laughs> Let me do that again. I love you 3000. Bye. Assemble. Movie should know. Movie should know.